The following audio was recorded at Stone Oak Bible Church. For more information about our church or for more resources, visit us at stoneoakbible.com. Last week was, uh, we looked at this text last week and we actually um, did a, part, a two-parter with this one. So we, we took our time through this, this text. And um, just a reminder, in part one last week, what we saw here in this chapter is dealing with the church community and how we can live and, and uh, uh, function in a community that is diverse. That's the big thing that's been on display in chapter 14 of Romans. How can we be a community and be diverse? Um, and what we saw in this text just to set the, the stage for us a little bit, is we saw two groups had formed. We had over here the primarily Jewish brothers and sisters. We had over here the primarily Gentile brothers and sisters. Over here, because of religious conviction, they did not eat meat. Over here, they did. Over here, they, they honored um, certain religious holidays. Over here, they did not. This text is dealing with how on earth can this church be diverse and yet unified on issues of conscience. And so as we've seen over uh, the last couple weeks in this chapter, although our specific issues aren't the same, like we don't, I haven't had very many discussions about eating in certain holidays. Um, the heart under those issues, though, is still very much the same, still very much um, the same. And so we have our differences, in other words, as a church, in the church, we have differences. What do we do with these differences? And I want to begin with the same two clarifications that we started with last week, because I think this is, is so important for us. The first is loving is greater than leaving. Loving is greater than than. Leaving. In other words, in this text that we looked at, you would have assumed that this ancient Roman church would have gone and broke right in half. That the primarily Jewish brothers and sisters would go form that church and Gentiles would form that church and that they would have split. Um, but that's not what we see and that's not what Paul's walking them through. What he's walking them through is, is how to stay, not leave how to show love and not despise because of the differences. That's what he's walking us, us through. So loving is greater than leaving. And the second thing is that unity is greater than uniformity. And what we mean here is that your church family is not always going to be the place where you go and everyone looks like you and sounds like you and dresses like you and votes like you and thinks like you and values what you value and lines up perfectly with all of your issues of conscience. The church is not going to be that place. That is uniformity. But what we see in Scripture and what we see in this room is, is a picture of unity, not uniformity. Unity is greater than uniformity. We are diverse and yet united under King Jesus together, walking together in that. That means 
we will have our differences. And in this room and in, in our church, there are going to be people who you differ with on issues of conscience. And that is wonderful. And that is why at the end of your Bible, in that last scene in Revelation, we get this picture of people from every tribe and tongue and nation and culture coming together to bend their knee to Jesus. The church is kind of a rehearsal for that. Diversity is beautiful. United in Jesus. One in Christ. Unity is greater than uniformity. So, Again, going back to the question, what do we do, though, when we have issues of conscience in the church? Last week, um, in part one, we talked about what not to do. We talked about what we should not be doing. Um, and, and if you remember, there were three negative commands that Paul gave us. I'm going to go through these very quickly just to catch us up. The first is do not pass judgment on one another, meaning we have a judge we do. We have a judge. And in one day, all of us, we will stand before our judge. But here's the thing. That judge is not you. That judge is, is not you, you. We will stand before Jesus on the issues that we have in our conscience one day and give an account. There is a judgment seat. It's just that's not your seat. That is Jesus's seat. And so we came to this. Paul has come to this over and over. Do not pass judgment on one another on these issues of conscience. The second thing here that we saw is do not bring destruction through your preferences. Paul was very clear about, about this. That like, Don't destroy your brother by what you eat. Don't for the sake of food destroy the work of God, he says. And so here's the reality. In a community, in our church community, you have the power through your actions and words to bring life and unity or destruction and division. And Paul is reminding us here, calling us to ask ourselves, is it worth destroying your brother and sister or wreaking havoc in the church community on the basis of your preferences. Paul says it is not. He reminds us the kingdom of God is more than food, more than our preferences. The church, the family of God is bigger than our divisions over conscience. Our preferences are not worth that. And so Paul gives us a straightforward command. Don't love your preferences more than your church family, more than your brother and sister. Don't love or don't destroy the work of God, he says by your issues of conscience. Um, and then lastly, the last, the third, the final, is don't allow what you regard as good to be spoken of as evil. This one was important because if you remember, we talked about the word evil is a moral word. It, it is a sin word, good and evil. So, so here's the thing. God has already told us what is good and what is evil. Issues of conscience... Um, in our issues of conscience, these kinds of things that we see here in our text are not those issues. They're not the righteousness and evil issues. They're issues of conscience. And so don't allow, Paul says, what you regard as good in your conscience to be spoken of as evil. Don't allow others' issues of conscience to be spoken of as evil. Why? Because you're not the judge again. Full circle. You're not the judge. Don't do these things. So Paul gave us these three don'ts. But that's not all he gives us. 
And so this morning, what we're going to do is walk through this text, and we are going to look at the positive commands, the things that he tells us to do, the do's. And so this morning, I want to read our text, and while I, when I do, I, I, I want us to sit with this and allow these challenges to just kind of shape us. And so I want to read it, and as I read it, listen for the positive things that Paul tells you to do in community, okay? Here we go. Romans 14, I'm going to read it straight through, starting in verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love, By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. So do not let what you regard as evil or as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating or in drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything indeed is clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Let's pray together. God, would you, Lord, would you shape us this morning through your word? We read your word this morning, but together we ask that your word would read us. Holy Spirit, would you move through your word this morning in the name of Jesus? Amen. Amen. All right, so how can we live in a diverse community, diverse church with diverse issues of conscience? How do we do it? Let's look at the positive commands that we see in this text. The first one we see is this one. Decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. This is an important idea, and um, honestly, this is probably, this is a fairly well-known verse in Scripture. If you grew up in the church, you probably heard this. I grew up in the church, and um, going through my teenage years, this, I, I debated if I was going to even say this, this was the verse used to talk about modesty. If you grew up in the church, you know what I mean. Don't cause someone to stumble by what you wear or how you present yourself. It's the, the way that I was... Uh, that I saw this in, in the way that I, that I heard this. Um, now, modesty, great word, topic for another time. Um, but as we look at this verse, the idea of that is much bigger than that. Um, and as we take this verse and we place it into the context of this chapter, we get a kind of a more full picture of what Paul is saying. We see this in 13b, right off the bat in our text. We see this. Decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother, Paul says. We see it referred to again in in 20 and 21, but it's wrong for you to do that. It's not good to eat 
drink. Don't do anything that causes your brother to stumble. So let's dig into this command. Um, let's start with the verb. What's our verb? What's the imperative? Well, it's this word right here, decide. This is, this is what you're being called to do, is to decide. Decide. What does it mean to decide? Well, it, three things. It's active. It's something you do. It's not passive. You don't like passively decide. You actively decide. It's an active thing. Uh, second, it's premeditated. What I mean by this is it's, it's something that you give forethought to. You think through this. You think about this. It's a decision you make ahead of time. Okay? Um, we see this clearly with the word never right after it. Decide never. Um, it's like if you decide, just for a diet reason, since this text gets us in the mood to talk about diet, if you decide never to eat meat, what does that mean? Well, it means you've made a premeditated decision before the waiter comes holding the menu. It's premeditated. You've thought this through. You've thought through this. So it's active, premeditated. It's also intentional, not accidental. A decision is something that is intentional. It requires intentionality. It's like that song that I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. We sing this, but we're talking about an active, premeditated, and intentional decision there. That's what is being said. Decide. It's, it's, it's the same thing here. And what are we to decide? We're decide to never put a stumbling block in the way of a brother. I have a visual here, and it's, I don't know, it's a terrible visual. Um, but I, I couldn't help but think of, like, if we were all running a marathon together. All right? We're all just, like, running on the street. And for some of you, you're like, yeah. Um, that's not going to happen. But imagine if we all, we're all doing it. We're all running, and it's fantastic. Now imagine if I, just out of the meanness of my own heart, was trying to throw things in your feet to trip you up. See how dark this example is? It came to my mind. I was like, I don't Imagine, though, if, if, if I'm trying to trip up another runner. It's insane. Like, think of me, like, taking my water bottle and, like, Woo, and throwing it in front of you or trying to kick the foot of the girl in front of me. Like, it's evil, all right? But it's, it's all of us running, causing our brothers and sisters to stumble, creating obstacles for them. If you have ever run a marathon uh, uh, or a half marathon, especially the big ones with, like, the thousands of people who run, um, there's something about it that is amazing because when you start... There are thousands of people around you. And for like seven miles, it's just tripping hazards. Like that's it. It's like seven miles. You're distracted to not trip people and not trip yourself. You're so crammed and it's awesome. But you don't want to trip. You don't want to trip others. You, and, and that imagery is kind of what comes to my mind when I think about a diverse church running our race together in Jesus. That we do our best for the glory of God to not kick our sister's feet out from, get her to trip. We do our best not to do that because we want to run well together. We want to care well for each other. It reminds me um, of what Paul says in, to the church in Corinth. And, and you don't have to turn with me here or anything, but in, in 1 Corinthians 9, um, he says, 
he makes this statement, and it's so point blank and direct. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? And then he says this. He says, this is my defense. To anyone who would examine me, he says, do I not have the right to eat and drink? He asks the question, do we not have the right to take along a wife like our other brothers and sisters do? Paul is asking these questions. Is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? He's asking these questions, and then right out of that, he goes into, this is really interesting, he starts then giving the scriptural references for why he has the right to do those things. He says, do I not have the right? Let me tell you why I have the right. And he lays it out, why he has the right, in this, in this case, to be paid as a minister of the gospel. He lays out his defense, but then he says this in verse 12. He says, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. And then he says this, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. You hear it? No obstacle, no stumbling block, no hindrance. Church, this is exactly like what we see in our text here in Romans 14. This is your calling, that you would love your brother and sister more than you would love your preferences and your rights. You would love them more than that, and that you would lay yourself down for them. And I want to take it a step further, um, in that you would actually decide, premeditated, decide that you are never going to create unnecessary um, obstacles for them in the gospel. You are going to make that decision. In this race, we, we run it together, and we will make the decision never to throw out our water bottles onto the road to trip them up, never to kick their feet, that we would make that decision. Um, and let me just reiterate something. This is written, Romans 14 is written for us in here, in the church, not just out there. It's written for us in here. For Now, we can talk about us not being a, a hindrance to the gospel out there. We can talk about that. That's certainly important. But what Paul is talking about in here is us running our race together and actively, premeditatedly, I don't think that's a word, you get it, and, and intentionally that we would decide that our brother and sisters mean more to us than our own rights that we would make this decision. Um, each week that we have preached through Romans, and I mean this, each week that we've been in Romans 14, someone has come up to me after the sermon and has talked to me about alcohol as an issue of conscience. And most of the time it's, hey, pastor, this would be a good example. Right? Every week someone has, has said this, and, and I think it's actually a fantastic example, but I want to do something a little different with it. I want to zoom out. Um, I want to zoom out from the personal level to a church-wide level. So here's the thing. I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but traditionally, communion, wine was used in communion. Traditionally. I'm talking centuries of the church would come together and remember Jesus with bread 
Most of the time, bigger quantities than we can give you. And wine for centuries. So my question is, why at Stone Oak Bible Church do we not use wine? Why? Why do we use grape juice? So church, we use grape juice because of Romans 14. And I mean it. We use grape juice because of Romans 14. Because we know that we have people, brothers and sisters in our church family who have deep conscience level issues with alcohol for whom it would be sinful for them to drink. And so for the love of our brother and sister, collectively we make the easiest decision in the world. Collectively, we make the easiest decision in the world to not present a stumbling block or hindrance. And what we decided is to replace the fermented fruit of the vine with the non-fermented, unfermented, whatever you want to say, fruit of the vine. It's an easy decision. This was an easy decision for us to make. Now, could we have made a stand? I mean, we planted the church. We could definitely have made this stand. And we could have said, you know what? I'm going to convince everyone why their consciences are wrong about this and that the church has been doing this for centuries. We could have taken a stand and alienated those who would not drink. We could have, but should we have? No. No, we, we, we should not have, because the point of communion is to point to Jesus. The point of communion is not to flaunt our freedoms at the expense of our brothers and sisters or to use a gospel presentation like communion to alienate them. It's not the point of communion. The point of communion is to point to the work of Jesus. And so here at Stone Oak Bible no matter what your view of alcohol is, in here we lay down our rights and we pick up little cups of grape juice and we remember Jesus. This is, this is our way of laying down these, these rights. This is Romans 14. Collectively, we've made this decision to remove a stumbling block. That's all it is to remove a stumbling block that gets in the way of a brother and sister. What's true on that church-wide level is also true as we apply it to a personal level. And so here's the question for you. I'm going to ask three questions this morning. This is the first of the three. Um, what would it actually look like for you on a personal level? What would this look like for you to decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother? What would that look like? to live that out? Are there non-gospel issues that you are clinging to so tightly at the expense of a brother or a sister? Are there non-gospel issues that you love more than them that we need to lay down that have become a stumbling block? And, and more than that, how can we lay them down? What does it look like for us to lay down our rights so that we can love each other well. What does that look like to decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother or a sister? All right, 
This moves us to the second command. The second command is this. Pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Uh, we see this in verse 19. Paul states it clearly. Pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. So let's pick apart this one. What's our verb? Pursue. So first one's decide. This one is pursue. Well, pursue is also active and it's also ongoing. To pursue something is not a done. I pursued. It's pursued. Check. Like think about it in, in relationship with my wife in marriage. Guys, you need to agree with this one. Pursuit is not a one-time thing. It's not something you said, done. I did that seven years ago, and I'm done. Pursuit is an ongoing thing. It is a, an ongoing pursuit. In fact, the definition of this Greek word is to move rapidly and decisively toward an objective. To move rapidly and decisively toward an objective. And so the question is, what are we moving rapidly and decisively and actively? What are we moving towards in this? Well, two things. The first is peace. This is the word for harmony. Um, harmony. Um, I want you to think about uh, um, if I had these closets were full of instruments and I were to pass them all out to us. Every one of us gets a loud and obnoxious instrument that we could, could all play. And we all started to play at the same time. What would you expect to hear? You'd expect to hear a bunch of noise, like chaos. Chaos and noise. But what happens when you take those same instruments and place them in the hands of people who play? No offense, if you play, you can be in that but under the leadership of one conductor. What happens? Those same instruments, that's, all of a sudden that noise becomes music, and all of a sudden the chaotic notes become melody and become harmony, and it's beautiful. Our call is to move rapidly and decisively to that as the people of God. To move rapidly and decisively toward peace and harmony that we might become a symphony that the world hears. Too often the world hears a bunch of clanging noises and notes that are not in any way connected. What would it look like if they heard a symphony? That is our call, that we would be drawn to our conductor, Jesus and, and this, again, highlights the important distinction between unity and uniformity. Because I could pass out all these instruments and tell you to play a D. And we might all be playing the same note, but it's obnoxious. Just D, right? It, it, would, be, it would be absolutely obnoxious, but it's another thing completely for all of those diverse notes to be played in unity not uniformity, where we all come together and the melody and the harmony and the full spectrum comes together. That is the vision that Scripture gives to us as the church. More a symphony and less all of us just playing a D. A symphony, harmony. 
When we love our preferences more than our brothers and sisters, we cease being a symphony and we start becoming a loud, chaotic noise. And so the first objective that we're moving toward and moving toward rapidly and decisively is to pursue peace, harmony. The second is mutual upbuilding. I love this word because mutual means both parties. Don't, don't miss this. Both sides of the issue, the stronger and the weaker. Um, in Romans, it's both the Jews and the Greek or the Gentiles on the other side of the church community. It's the stronger and the weaker mutually building each other up. Now, we see this and we might expect this to be more of a one-way street. That, hey, weaker brother, weaker sister, don't worry, the strong one's coming. They're going to build you up. He doesn't say that. He says mutual. That means weak brother, strong brother, come to the table because you need each other. You mutually need each other. We need the diversity in our church community because that is what God is using to shape you, to build you, and to build you up for his glory as, as his people. This is another reason why, again, I'll go back to where we started, we need diversity. Because if everyone looks like you, and everyone thinks like you, and everyone dresses and talks and acts just like you on everything, how much would you grow? You wouldn't. You, you, you would stay the same because everyone around you would just be affirming you. Would just be telling you what you want to hear because they're, they're telling you what you already, you already think. This is what echo chambers give you. This is what echo chambers, this is what uniformity gives us, but this is not what Scripture gives us as Scripture paints the picture for what the church is and what the church should be. Instead, we see mutual upbuilding, mutual upbuilding, mutual edification. This is huge. So again, I said I have three questions. The first one was what would it look like for you today, right now, to decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother and sister? The second question is, what would it look like for you today to pursue what makes for peace and harmony and mutual upbuilding? What would this look like for you to actively and decisively move toward harmony in your church? What would this look like for you? For some it might be as simple as finally stepping into community. Because here's the deal. It is really hard to be a symphony when you are alone in your own little room. It's really difficult to be a symphony. As a lone ranger, I could pick up this guitar and go play it. That's all fun. It's all good. But that is not the same thing as being part of a symphony or being part of a band that come together and play together in unity and in, in harmony. So for some, we need to step into community. For others, you might be avoiding or might be running from some conversations that you need to have. Running doesn't pursue what makes for peace. Sometimes we need to run in, lean in. For others, you might... This might be the call that you need to stop focusing on you so much 
on your single note that you are rocking. That you would stop focusing on you and focus more on those sitting beside you. What would it look like if you cared just as much about building them up than how much you are being built up? What would that look like? What would it look like for us today to pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding? And this brings us to our third and final command. And some of you might have already known where I'm going because when I read it, you went, ugh, this one's a tough one. Command number three, keep the faith that you have between yourself and God. <laughs> Those are not my words. Like, that is actually written. Like, here, keep the faith. Verse 22a, keep the faith that you have. Just keep it between yourself and God. Okay? Let's dig into this again. Let's dig in just like the others. What's our verb? Keep. Keep. So decide, then pursue, and here we have keep. What are we keeping? Um, keep, by the way, is another one of those active words. Uh, it, it's, it's not some one-time thing. It's this active, ongoing word, like decide in our first command, like pursue in our second command. It is active and ongoing. And what are we commanded to keep? Um, this is where context is so important. So important. Because without context, you could really, really misinterpret this. See, without context, you might be led down a path. See, this, hear me, this is not talking about, this faith right here is not talking about the salvific faith that you have in Jesus. This is not talking about the conviction you have in the gospel. This is not talking about our faith and confidence in the word of God and the truth of Jesus. That is not what this faith is. This text is is not talking about our conviction in Jesus, about Jesus, and our faith in him. This text, church, is talking about our faith and our confidence in issues of conscience. What has Romans 14 been all about? Conscience. Levels of issues of conscience. And so as we place this text in to context. This is so important because Paul is not commanding you to keep the faith that you have in Jesus private. Like, keep it to yourself. Paul is not commanding you to go against the Great Commission that tells you to go out, to make disciples, to proclaim the gospel. Paul is not calling you to ignore all that and to live out your faith in silence. It's not what Paul is saying. Also, i got to add to this, contrary to what our postmodern world might lead you to believe. This is also not Paul saying, hey, 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 what's true for you is true for you. What's true for them is true for them. So just keep it shut. That is not what, what Paul is, is saying. Um, Paul is not talking about that kind of faith. He's, he's talking about faith on levels of our issues of conscience is what Paul is talking about. So Paul is, in other words, if we bring this to issues of conscience here, what Paul is commanding us to do is not to walk into a room and to say, everyone, here are my issues of conscience. Let me make sure everyone knows it. 
What, to use the alcohol example. Your call is not to walk into this room and say, you know what? Let me tell you how cool I am with beer. Let me just tell you. Everyone here needs to hear it. And I don't care what no, they need to know. They need to know how much freedom I have, right? Last week, we talked about issues of conscience in relation to COVID-19. And um, what Paul is saying is, it's not for you to walk into this room and just to loudly proclaim and make sure everyone knows where you are and what you believe is the right way to approach wearing a mask, standing six feet from someone else, to loudly proclaim. Instead, Paul says, with these different types of issues of conscience, let us not make these things the thing. Let us not make these things the thing and proclaim them around to each other. Instead, he says, keep them. Keep them. And, and um, where are we supposed to keep them? This is so important. He says, between yourself and God. Between yourself and God. Here's the thing. On issues of conscience, vertical worship leads to horizontal harmony. Vertical worship leads to horizontal harmony. When we do things as unto the Lord, when we walk with him and do things as unto the Lord, as worship in all of these areas of conscience, when we live our lives in worship to God, that is vertical. That is vertical alignment in, in worship, and it leads to harmony in the church. If you, if you think about it, just think back at, at Romans 14 again. In verses 5 and 6, we have Paul saying, hey, one person, they're esteeming one day as being better than the other, while another person says all days are alike. Um, Paul says each one should be fully convinced in your own mind. That's conscience again. And then listen to verse 6. The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. That is vertical. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord. That is, church, vertical. The one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord. That is vertical. When our issues of conscience are vertical, our acts of worship, then they lead us to harmony in the middle of our diversity. But when we, on the flip side, aim on pleasing people or telling people why we're right and why they're wrong, or when we try to just devote our lives to convincing everyone to get on our side, when we do that, that does not lead us to worship. That is not vertical. That is not as unto the Lord. And what happens is it leads to a break horizontally in our relationships, in our churches. When we lose sight of the as unto the Lord, it causes us to think that we need to seek and find people that are like us and that are uniform with us. In other words, we make issues of conscience only horizontal issue, horizontal um, issues, then we've missed it. Your issues of conscience are opportunities of worship for you. And so Paul says, keep the faith you have between yourself and God. Don't lose sight that your issues of conscience is the Holy Spirit at work in you. And so we walk in faith in Jesus as 
in worship, vertical. And so you know how I would sum this up, this, this difficult verse? This might be overly simplistic, but I think it nails it. Um, I would sum this up like this. In issues of conscience, worship God and let it go. Worship God and let it go. But they're doing this and, and, and they're going that way and, and I need them to know how I feel about that. Ah. Worship God and let it go. Worship God in what you can control, what you will give an account for. Worship him in those things and let it go. Knowing that he is sovereign, knowing that Jesus is the judge and Jesus is the king and the Holy Spirit is alive and active in his church and he does not need you to be the judge and the convictor of his people. Worship God and let it go. Let it go. Um, so here are the questions for us. I said I had three. And uh, I've given you two. Let me give them again. Number one, question number one, what would it look like for you today to decide to never put a stumbling block in the way of someone else in this room, in the way of someone else in your community group, in the way of someone else in your church community? What would that look like to decide to never put a stumbling block in their way? Question number two, what would it look like for you today to pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding? What, what would it look like for you to actively and decisively pursue harmony in your church? What would it look like? And the third and final question, what would it look like in issues of conscience for you to focus your sight on him, on God, in worship, for you to focus on him and for you to let it all go, to let it go? What would it look like for you to love your brother and sister more than your right to voice your opinion? What would it look like? For some, that might mean that you just need to stop engaging in the nonsense you're engaging in, trying to convince the whole world to be like you, to think like you. It's a losing battle. It's, it's, uh, it's exhausting. For some of you, that it just means just stop it. That could be what God is, is showing. For others, um, this might be a time for you to assess your own heart and to ask, why am I doing the things I am doing on these conscience level issues? Is it for worship or is it self-righteousness? Is it for him or is it for them? How is your own heart? What would it look like for you to worship him and to let it go?